0: Mark chapter nine verses fourteen and nineteen. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you this morning, you can uh, grab a Bible on the uh, the back table here. So make sure you grab one so you can follow along. Uh, there should be a note sheet that you can uh, follow along with us as well. So uh, feel free to grab a note sheet, grab a Bible. And we're going to jump into Mark chapter nine this morning here. So if you got your Bibles open, go ahead and we're going to read together from verses 14 to down through 29 we're going to stand as we do so so if you're open up there go ahead and stand and let's read it together mark chapter 9 starting in verse 14 and when they came to the disciples they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them and immediately all the crowd when they saw him were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him and he asked them what are you arguing about with them And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and they often cast him into fire, into water, and to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father, the child, cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house with his disciples, or entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Go ahead, and MC, we'll pray. Prepare our hearts for our Time of reflection together this morning. So, Father, thank you for uh, your grace. Thank you for being a, a merciful and gracious God. And thank you for providing the, 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 the sweet privilege for us to be here each week to, to study and to learn and to grow. And I pray that this morning as we come again to, to Mark's gospel, we know that Mark is trying to help set before us uh, the beauty and the true nature of Christ. And to draw us into deeper faith and relationship with him. And today is a day that Lord is uh, a tester. Uh, it's one that helps us maybe see a little bit clearly, more clearly why it is that our faith is not as strong as it should be. Or how it is weak or the the things that seek to distract us from trusting in you. So I pray that you would give humble hearts to our students. I uh, pray that you would help myself, Lord, see myself in this story and see the ways that... Um, my faith is so often weak because of these things, and that, Lord, you would ultimately use it not to cause us to despair, but to drive us ever more closely into the arms of Christ. So would you do that for us this morning? Would you help us as we come to your word now? In Jesus' name, amen. So this, uh, this past week, um, there was a brand new song that was released by... Uh, Christian group called City of Light. City of Light is a group that we actually sing a number of songs with. Uh, their songs in our worship services or even do here on a, uh, a Wednesday night. And they released uh, a song this past week, brand new, called In the Valley. In the Valley. They uh, collaborated uh, to write this song with a very famous Christian author and blogger by the name of Tim Challies. If you don't know who Tim Challies is... Uh, Tim is very uh, well known in evangelical Christian circles, um, but Tim has been in a very interesting situation over the last couple of years, because in many ways, the last couple of years have been uh, a real season of, of grief for him and for his family. Um, Tim, just a, a few years ago in 2020, uh, his oldest son was in college, boys' College down in uh, Kentucky, and suddenly, unexpectedly, without warning, without any knowledge of any medical history, his son collapsed from a very sudden heart issue and died. Completely unexpectedly, just turned their world upside down. And so Tim has spent a lot of time over the past few years processing that grief and the genuine sorrow that has caused And yet, through it all, has shared how it actually has refined his faith uh, and how it has caused him to actually trust more in God, not less. And actually, just recently, he released a book called Seasons of Sorrow to help others as they process life as they go through the valleys of darkness. The goal is that even in life's valleys, we might remain trusting and hopeful in our great God because that is the nature of a life of faith. Uh, The life of faith is one that remains dependent on Jesus at all times. The very nature of faith is dependence, and that dependence rests solely in the work and the person of Jesus. And at the center of today's story is another father whose son is also in great trouble. We have here disciples who are struggling. We have religious leaders who are arguing. We have crowds who are are pressing in. There's this deep, deep dark situation that is brewing in this story and the problem at the heart of this passage is not necessarily the desperate situation of this little boy who needs to be healed but rather it is about the weakness of faith demonstrated in multiple ways in other words this literal valley is proving to be a testing ground for their trust in jesus what will they do when life gets hard when things don't go the way that they expect and really i would say this story gives us a template to better see why so often we don't remain dependent on jesus or we could say it shows us why so often our faith fails and so we're going to look at that this morning in four different ways and see why so often our faith does fail. And that doesn't mean that when our faith fails, that means that we are no longer Christians, that we have uh, completely uh, disappointed God. It is just to show the fact that our faith is not always depending on Jesus the way it should be. So what are the things that cause us to fall into these moments? What are the reasons for them? Well, the first one that I think we see is in verses 14 to 19, the reason our faith fails is because not every moment in life is glorious. Not every moment in life is glorious. I mean, think for a moment here of the situation. You have here in verses 14 to 19, uh, Jesus, James, John, and Peter, uh, they have been away for a couple of days, separate from the rest of the disciples. What, what was it that caused Jesus and uh, Peter, James, and John to be away from his disciples? Do you remember? What was, the, what was going on that caused them to be yeah, separated? Yeah. They went up the mountain mm-hmm. saw Jesus transfigured. Yeah, absolutely. So Jesus took them on a little bit of a field trip. They go up this mountain and uh, he chooses just three of his disciples. His, his closest inner circle with Peter, James, and John, they go up on this mountain, and Jesus transfigures before them. He shows them the, the full extent of his glory and who he is, right? The last couple of chapters in Mark uh, have been showing us Jesus gradually revealing more and more of who he really is, to see Jesus as he really is. And now we see him bringing his disciples, bringing these three guys down to rejoin the rest of the guys from the mountain to the valley. And what we find in the valley is dark. It's desperate, right? When they they come back down, they see uh, a great crowd of people. They uh, see the disciples. They're in an argument with the crowds. And amongst the crowds are the scribes, the religious leaders. And it's just kind of chaos. It's a mess. It's it's not fun. And Jesus, trying to figure out what is going on, verse 15, immediately, all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, they see Jesus is finally coming back. They run to him, right? They're like, this is why we're here. We really want to see Jesus. And Jesus is like, what in the world is happening here? What is going on with this situation? And rather than the disciples piping up or the scribes explaining what they're doing there and trying to stir up dissension. A voice calls out from the crowd. Verse 17, verse 17, someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able so think about this. The disciples, the, the scribes, they're in this argument over what's going on right now with this little boy. And at the, the heart of this is a father who so desperately wants this child to be healed. And again, I, I ask you, we, we've done this before, but I need you to just kind of separate what you have already read in the Bible before, what you feel like you know, and I need you to come at this afresh for just a moment. Here you have a father whose child, his little boy, is suffering immensely. A, a father whose little boy has been afflicted by this unclean spirit, this demon that has taken up resident and residence in his life, has caused him to become mute. And usually in the, the, the Gospels, whenever... Uh, someone is mute they are also deaf and we hear that also later on in this passage so in other words he can't speak he can't hear he is disoriented by the fact that this demon has come up and take residence in his life we learn later on that it causes him to to fall down to grind his teeth to foam at the mouth and at opportune times this demon even tries to kill this boy whenever he's near a a body of water right Father and son going for just a walk around the lake and all of a sudden this seizes him and throws him into the lake. Tries to drown him. Walking by and there's somebody uh, cooking up a meal or whatever. Tries to throw him into the fire. So you can imagine this boy afflicted in so many of these ways, probably covered in scars from all these burns, all these symbols of what he has been through for years. This is a hard and horrific life. So then that... Very few of us can even begin to imagine what the emotions of this father is going through. And here he comes. He hears the news that Jesus is in this realm. He brings his son to Jesus. Jesus isn't actually there, but his disciples are. And he thinks to himself, well, you know what? This is better than nothing. These guys know Jesus. They have a personal, intimate relationship. So maybe they can help. Since Jesus isn't here, maybe they can help. And what do we find out? They're unable to. And their inability to help creates arguments. It creates divisions. It creates uh, chaos amongst the people. And here you have this father standing at the side just saying, is anybody able to help my son? And they're all arguing, trying to justify why maybe they're not able to do it. And here's the deal. You have to remember something. The disciples can do this. Why do we know that? Well, because if you went back to chapter 6, you might remember that Jesus gave them power to go out and to proclaim his message. And gave them the ability to perform miraculous things that testified to this gospel message that they're proclaiming. And it included in chapter 6 saying that they did cast out demons. So they are able to do this. This is not something that's outside of the realm of possibility for something that they have been able to do before. And yet something else is going on behind the scenes that's keeping them from being able to do so. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But here again, you must remember the heart of the Father who is here, who desperately wants his child to be healed, and it's just a mess. It's a reminder that life is not always glorious. And I say that because think about Peter, James, and John, where they're coming from. They're coming from a mountaintop experience. They're coming from the highs of highs, the best points of life. Like, life cannot get any better. But here's the reality, students. Your life is not lived by constant high points. You know, as I was preparing for this this week, I was happening to, I was at my standing desk, Gary, and I have a, a calendar that sits right above my desk. And it's a it's a runner's calendar just because I like I like running. And ironically enough, the the scene that is in this picture that I have is this picturesque view of this this gal who's who's running through this open field. But in the background is this beautiful mountain range. Beautiful, beautiful mountain range. And where is she? She's running through the low point. She's running through the valley. And I thought to myself, well, that's really ironic because the, the majority of our life is not lived on the high points. God has not made us necessarily to live always on cloud nine, as if life in every moment we're going to encounter is going to be perfectly glorious. The reality is so often our faith fails because we forget that not every moment is meant to be lived that way. In fact, we go through the valleys. We go through dark times. We go through seasons of suffering. We go through illnesses we go through real trials of friendship and and faith and we have to arm ourselves with that mindset that life is not always supposed to be up here but so often god actually causes us to walk through the valleys psalm 23 verse 3 reminds us that even though we walk through the valleys of deep darkness that god is with us and so often we forget that so these guys here are wrestling with this, this idea that not every moment in life is is glorious. That's the first reason why so often our faith fails. And that leads into really the second uh, reason our faith fails so often is that our circumstances tend to cloud our vision. We forget this. And our circumstances cloud our vision. Look at verse 20. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And it's so interesting that like, this actually is happening right on the scene. Everybody's probably frozen. Like, what in the world are we supposed to do? And Jesus takes the time to look at the Father and he asks the Father, how long has this been happening? Isn't... Again, we read these stories, we've probably read them before, but I don't know if we ever really catch the compassionate nature of Jesus in these moments. He could have, in that moment, just healed the boy right away. And yet he takes the time to actually ask the father, how long has this been happening? Like he wants to really dig up the heart of all of this. And he said from childhood, right, from the, the earliest day, days of this boy's life, he's been wrestling with this. And it's not just that it's been from the earliest days of his childhood. It's often, as he says here, cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Something that no child should ever have to go through. Faith is so often challenged by difficult circumstances. And in this moment, a love... The heart of the Father here, even though it reveals a faith that, that is, is struggling. He says in verse 22 there at the end, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He just comes open-handed to Jesus saying, "Like, listen, I, there's nothing more that we can do And if you can do anything, anything, have compassion, have mercy. Show your kindness to us and and help us. He doesn't even maybe know the fullness of what that means, but he just knows that Jesus is the person who can help him. Verse 23, Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes and i just love the response of the father here even though again it re- it, it is the I think the purest expression of faith that struggles immediately the father from the chi- of the child cried out and said i believe help my unbelief there is a a, a purifying nature to that expression right there as I mentioned, faith so often is challenged by difficult circumstances. It wants to believe, and, and really we could even say, in many ways, it does believe that something is possible. And yet, the circumstances and the storms of life tend to shake our faith. Right? Like, help my, help my unbelief is an honest plea from the heart of this guy here. He he knows, or maybe even in our lives, we know that Christ is able to do something. Perhaps we've, we've seen him do it before, but the valleys seem too deep and too dark for us to be able to see clearly. It's one of those where you look at the situation, and you're like, I know God is big. I know he is sovereign. I know that he is powerful, but I don't see the way out. I don't see how this is gonna be possible, right? It's like the Israelites looking at, uh, the, the sea, the Red Sea, and having seen all these ways that God had already brought plagues upon Egypt and then looking at the Red Sea and saying, I don't see what God's going to do here. I know what he was able to do. I, I've seen him do it before, but I, I don't see a way forward. In many ways, the struggle here, again, is the fact that circumstances tend to cloud our vision. The situation feels so deep and dark and desperate that we don't often remember to really see Jesus for who he is. It's really like Peter in Matthew 14, where Peter calls out to Jesus. Jesus is walking on the water, and Peter says what? He, he asks Jesus, hey, tell me, come to you. Tell me to come to you. And, and Jesus says, come. And Peter, for a moment, is able to walk on water. He is able to go to Jesus. But what happens in that moment then? He starts to look at the waves. He starts to feel the wind. He starts to uh, feel the darkness closing in. And what does he do? He looks away from Christ. And he starts to look at the danger of the situation that's around him. And then in that moment, his faith begins to sink. The reason it sinks is because he takes his eyes off of Jesus, which in many ways is the third thing we see in this story. Is that the reason our faith fails is because we take our eyes off the object of our faith. Jesus is getting a little bit concerned in this passage in verse 25 because the crowds are, are starting to run together. The crowds are getting larger. People are starting to accumulate. And Remember, Jesus is trying to keep his profile as the Messiah Uh, to a minimum, right? He's not wanting to give people a wrong impression of of who he is or to deter him from his mission, which is now very clearly to go to the cross. And so he decides to take action here. And he calls out, he rebukes the unclean spirit. He says, you mute and death. Again, this is how we know that this is probably desperate, right? The mute and death spirit. I command you to come out of him. Notice he doesn't just say, command you to come out of him." but never enter him again permanency fullness restored completely forever and yet notice the moment that he says this it says in verse 26 after crying out and convulsing him terribly the demon the unclean spirit came out and the boy was like a corpse so much so that people wondered is he dead it's actually interesting because up until this week when I've studied this, I've just assumed like, oh, well, it it was so violent on this little boy that, you know, he probably just, yeah, he, he looked like he was dead. He was just so weak after this whole thing. But it's interesting because in verse 27, it says that Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. The language that is actually used there in the original language is actually the words for, by raising them up, is actually the word that's used for resurrection. And so they're very well, maybe, I don't want to speak definitively on this, but there very well could be a resurrection display right here. And whether or not this boy actually died or not, the truth. Truth is, he has been given new, not, new life. He has uh, arisen to a brand new life because of what Christ has done. His old self has been put to death and his new life has been given to him as a gracious gift from Christ. This is so magnificent. I love this, right? This resurrection power, this newness of life. Because the reason that I explain this way this way is because so often the reason our, our, our faith fails is because we are starting to put too much trust in ourselves rather than the object of our faith. In other words, student, understand this this morning. It's not about how much faith you have. It's about the focus of your faith. It's not about the amount of faith that's important, but the object of your faith. Put it another way for you that hopefully might be helpful. Your faith is only as strong as its object. In other words, your faith is only as strong as what you're trusting in. And so if you're in a situation and you're trying to figure it out all on your own, guess what? You're going to have an extremely weak faith because you are weak. Your power is limited. Your wisdom is not strong enough. But when you have a Savior who has resurrection power, who is able to grant complete newness of life, to bring life to desperately dark, dead situations, that's power. That's why our faith constantly needs to be on Christ and not ourselves. And not our ability to, to handle situations on our own. Our faith fails because we take our eyes off the object of our faith. And then finally it fails because, honestly, our pride keeps us living from living dependently. Our pride keeps us from living dependently on Jesus. The story closes kind of with like a side story here. Jesus and his disciples, after this whole thing goes down, they enter into a house. We don't know whose house necessarily, but they, they, they go away. They go into this house, and the disciples finally ask a good question. Why, why could we not do it? Why were we not able to drive this demon out? Because keep in mind, again, they have done this before. So why in the world could we not do it this time? What was going on, Jesus? Help us to understand. And Jesus says to them, and closes this section by saying, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Kind of a fascinating way that Jesus ends this here. Because we're like, oh, okay, so the reason that They couldn't drive it out. was because they forgot to pray before they tried to cast out this demon. But I don't think that that's what Jesus necessarily has in mind. It doesn't mean that they failed to recite the appropriate prayer before doing some type of exorcism. It's not as if they forgot the right combination of words to say in the moment. No, I think what Jesus is getting at here is that their inability was due to their self-reliance rather than their God-dependence. They failed because they were being self-reliant rather than God-dependent. That's the very nature of what prayer is. Prayer is dependence upon God. And it's interesting because you ask yourself, well, why were they so prideful, right? Like, why was it that they were being self-reliant here? I don't know this for sure, but I think it's interesting, right, that Jesus only took three of his disciples up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Nine of the closest followers and probably other disciples and other followers were, were left behind. They didn't get to go. They didn't get the, the special one-on-one time with Jesus like they had maybe hoped. And so it makes you wonder if there's not some sense of, of jealousy. There's not some sense of, we're going to try to prove ourselves that we, we are worthy of this, that we are able to do this, right? So this guy comes with his son and he's looking for Jesus. Well, Jesus isn't here, but you know what? We're followers of Jesus. We're capable. We, we, we have the ability to do this. So you know what? Just entrust him to us and we'll take care of it for you. You see how pride in very subtle ways can sneak into our lives and cause us to start to say you know what maybe this is more about what i can do now than what god has always been able to do for me my life is not about what i am able but what god is able i love the the way that one author david Garland, he says this he says this account vividly shows us how much we are like the disciples. Here's why. The disciples, beset by failure, too ready to engage in arguments, undisciplined in prayer, and more eager to learn techniques than to take time to walk closely with God. And I don't know about you, but as I read that statement... I feel that pull. I sense those ways where failure makes me doubt. So often I want to be defensive and want to engage in arguments. I see so often I'm more concerned about what I need to get done than I am about living dependently upon God and cultivating a heart of greater dependence upon him. Right? That is what faith is all about. And Jesus is trying to put that front and center for his disciples and for this father even This morning, And so as we process everything, what Mark has just shown us and what he has taught us this morning, we ask ourselves, what is it that we should walk away with? What are some points that we need to to consider this morning? I think there's a couple really key ideas that you need to to think about as you walk away from this passage. First is this, faith in its purest sense is dependence. If there is another word that is great for faith, it is this word dependence. Right, and You live in a culture right now that is all about independence. And I get it. It's hard, right? We even have a holiday called Independence Day in our culture. And I, and I get the, the mindset of it, but you are living in a, an age where you are growing into independence. And there are some good, very reasonable things as you grow into maturity as an adult where independence is good and right. But the reality is that the Christian life is about a... Dependence, And it's not a dependence on yourself. It's a dependence on God. The very nature of faith is that it is complete surrender to self-reliance. I mean, that's why you're able to be a Christian. The very nature of Christianity is waving the white flag of saying, I can't do this on my own. I can't be good enough. I can't earn my way to God. I can't uh, try hard enough. I need Christ to do it for me. It's to really cry out, Lord, Lord, I need you. Salvation is not a matter of intellect, decision, or performance. But it's truly a confession that says, Jesus, you are my only hope. And I need you not just to to save me, to not just give me that newness of life. I need you day by day by day. I like the way that uh, Paul talks about this in Galatians because he yeah, he addresses the the church there that's really struggling with this idea of how much they they work and they contribute to their their Christian life and uh, what actually earns them salvation. Because he he asks them this question: He's like, having been perfected, having uh, been saved. By grace, are you now trying to perfect yourself by works? In other words, he's saying, listen, faith is, is something that's ongoing, right? Obviously, it's what saves you. It's what brings you into right la- relationship with God. But this is now a lifestyle. You are still remaining completely dependent and trusting God to give you the help that you need, which is why then we could even say going off of this dependence and its purest expression is prayer. Dependence and its purest expression is prayer. We could even say that prayer is not just a set time, but really prayer is about a state of mind, and that's going to come as maybe a little bit of a, a surprise to some of you this morning, because we we think very limited sometimes when we think about prayer. We think about, well, I need to have more of my set time of prayer, which honestly, for a lot of us, we do. So I'm not going to deny that very fact that so often we maybe make the mistake and we think to ourselves well prayer is about these set specific times whereas the bible actually talks about no prayer is actually a state of mind how do i know that well first thessalonians chapter 5 verse 17 a verse that many of you are maybe familiar with you've heard but you've never contemplated before is the verse where paul says you are to pray without ceasing and you're like well, what does that mean yeah. pray without ceasing well if i didn't if I just pray all the time, then I'm not doing anything else. And we know the Bible calls me to do so much more than just pray. So what is this idea of praying without ceasing? Well, thanks for asking. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that is constantly seeking God in the moments of everyday life. Yes, you have set times of prayer where you are pouring yourself out to God. You are giving him specific requests, but prayer as a lifestyle means that you are constantly living your life saying, God, God, I need you here, right? Lord, please, in this situation, can you just give me wisdom? Jesus, help me with this conversation that even as I'm talking to this person is not maybe going the way that I would hope it would. God, what would you have me to do? Or maybe you're faced with a, an opportunity, a temptation towards sin or something that you know is not right. God, Keep me from sinning against you in this moment. Help my mind to go back to your words. Help bring to mind something that would help me in this situation. Help me see that your word is true and it is sufficient. Or as we even say around here at Newcastle, in the moments in life when something does go well or there's something that's celebratory, to just have an attitude of just saying in that moment, thanks, Lord. Thank you. Again, this doesn't always have to be the set, like, hold on one moment. Okay, like, no, it's like you actually in that moment can pray in your heart and in your mind, Lord, please, I need you. You're constantly seeking God rather than trying to find your own word, your own wisdom, trying to guide you in every moment, but you are always looking to God. As you're competing, as you're walking the halls, as you're talking with friends, as you prepare for your test, student, prayer is a lifestyle not just a set moment, but it is a state of mind. Thirdly, be on guard for how your generation seeks to undermine your faith. It's interesting that in verse 19, Jesus responds to the situation by saying, Oh faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? In other words, he, he's looking at this generation and seeing all these ways that faith is undercut. For them to doubt. For them to to not be dependent. And so student, I just want you to think about, because this is not just a, oh, that generation type of thing. Every generation comes with its temptations for you to not live trusting God. And I tell you that so you can be on guard, actively be looking for the ways that our culture and our world that you live in right now is seeking to distract you from living dependently, right? That comes in learning and education, right? We live in a culture right now that says truth is relative, which means that, you know what? You can have a truth, I can have a truth, they can have a truth, and it's okay. Like, your truth is yours, my truth is mine, it's okay. Everybody can have a different understanding of what's true that undermines faith. Totally undermines faith. Or we could talk all the different ways about entertainment today, right? The way that social media or the shows that you watch are seeking to cloud your vision, right? We talked about this morning. Things that actually cloud your vision from seeing Jesus for who he really is. And they distract you. They distract you. Becomes a form of self-indulgence or self-identity. And they all undercut faith. They do. They have an impact on the way that you think about living with a God-first mindset. And so I love all of you enough to say, be on guard. Look for those things. And don't be afraid to make big choices, radical choices, that helps strengthen your faith and not provide more distractions from strengthening you. Fourth, and this one's simple and yet so profound. When life gets hard, run to Jesus. And notice I said when life gets hard. I didn't say if life gets hard because we, again, learned this morning that you don't live life on the mountaintop. Not every week of your life is an Ascend Camp experience. Not every week of your life is a baptism Sunday. Right? Like, that's just the reality of it. It's not that every single day. And so when life does get hard, whenever you have a loved one who's getting sick, whenever things in your your friend group are not going the way that you would want it to, whenever there's, there's hardship in your family, whatever it may be, know where to run to and that's a big difference in the story between the disciples and the father. Notice that the disciples, when things got hard, they became more self-reliant. They, they tried to do more in their own strength. Whereas you have the father who is so dark, so desperate in his situation that all he can do is run to Jesus. Right? He, he's struggling in his faith, but he at least runs to Jesus and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Student, I would much rather you be in that place where you know where to run to, even if your faith is weak and even if it's struggling. Run to Jesus rather than try to figure it out on your own and try to just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and be good enough or try to work through the situation on your own. Run to the one who has the answers, run to the one who is strong when you are weak. In fact, as you think about this, remember this, that when you are weak, actually, then you are strong. When you are weak, then you are strong. Sounds kind of contrary, so where does that come from? Well, it comes directly from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul says, The Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. Paul was going through a really hard time in his ministry. He actually was praying for the Lord to take that suffering away from him and the Lord multiple times said no because my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I love that. Then he goes on to say this for the sake of Christ then I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. In other words, I am content in the valleys because when I am weak, then I am strong. God's grace, student, is sufficient. Power is made perfect in weakness. Keep this in mind as we close this morning. It is actually God's grace to humble you, to keep you humble, and in many ways sometimes to keep you weak, because he wants you to daily, moment by moment, remind you of how much you need him. And That's God's grace. And he does it so that our faith does not fail. It's not his goal. But he actually does that so that our faith would be stronger. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time you've given us to meditate on your word together. I pray that you would strengthen our faith. That you would use what we've learned this morning to not cause our faith to fail, but actually to, to grow And to rest more dependently in the saving and perfecting work of Christ. You are an amazing God. You are worthy of all that we are. Thank you for Christ and thank you for him. In a very convicting but very helpful way. Pointing out the weakness of our faith. And drawing us closer to himself. Because we know that in Christ Jesus we are stronger than we can even imagine. So, Lord, help our students to live that way. Help us to know what it is to rest sufficiently in you. For the glory of your name. Amen.